From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A., I'm Aaron Tracy. Today, one of the biggest names in film, Nancy Myers. Nancy is one of the very rare screenwriters and directors who's become a household name. She's dominated the romantic comedy genre for decades, stretching all the way back to her first screenplay, which was nominated for an Oscar. She's also got such a strong, distinct voice that, you know, like with a Tarantino or Scorsese movie, you can watch just one scene from a film of hers and you immediately know that it's her. Without question, Nancy has been the most commercially successful female writer and director in Hollywood over her career. I'm also pretty psyched to announce that this is Nancy's first ever podcast interview. Um, She thinks she may have done one in England once, but I'm skeptical. Either way, a nice coup for our little show here. I had a long call with Nancy the other day, which I really enjoyed. I found out halfway through that she was on her treadmill the whole time, which I kind of love. Isn't that exactly how you picture Nancy? In her giant Los Angeles mansion, doing a thousand things at once, getting exercise, talking on the phone, probably shooting off work emails, pausing our call to take her grandson to the bathroom, and getting ready for a dinner party she was throwing that night, which she finally had to hang up on me to get ready for. Pretty perfect. Nancy says she's happy to talk about her process and her writing, anything we want. There's only one question she doesn't want to be asked, and that's about the decor of her films. Everyone asks her about decor. One website I found ran a quiz asking, which Nancy Myers kitchen are you? Nancy finds it insulting to her films and downright sexist. And I gotta say, I know what she means. No one asks Judd Apatow about the decor of his movies. No one asks Rob Reiner. No one asks Stephen Frears. Anyway, there's so much more to talk to Nancy about. She's one of the last filmmakers standing who gets to make movies for adults that are about recognizable human beings and their relationships and issues. I just took a quick look at the top 10 movies of the year so far. There are only two not based on a comic book or part of a franchise. So whether you love Nancy's movies or not, and if you're listening to this, you probably love them, you've got to respect the hell out of the fact that she's telling original stories about human beings for grown-ups. And if you think she can only write about women, check out Father of the Bride with Steve Martin or What Women Want with Mel Gibson. Funny, charming movies with giant hearts whose protagonists are going through a pain we can all relate to. All right, enough preamble. Let's do this. In her debut podcast ever, Nancy Myers. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. The cast that you've put together for your last handful of movies or so are, are kind of like the who's who of greatest living American actors. Um, De Niro and Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson and Diane Keaton and Frances McDormand and on and on and on. Um, I'm I'm curious how you go about approaching these actors, um, do you, maybe maybe there's not always one way, but but do you tend to um, pitch them before you start writing, or do you wait till you have a script, or, or what's what's that relationship like? Yeah, well, you know, uh, it depends um, on the film. I have gone to actors before I've actually written once I have an outline, 
then I meet with them to see if they might be interested in this idea because I I know me, I'll get sort of locked into them. And But by the way, you, this is not an easy thing to accomplish, uh, but once you've made some movies and you're, you know, you, you can get a meeting with these people, it's hard to do that if you're a new writer. Sure. Hey, I have an idea. I wonder if Jack Nicholson would like it. It's, <laughs> it's hard. And by the way, when I met with him, um, somebody had to, we have a mutual really close friend, had to arrange. It wasn't like I called his agent to do it. But um, so you, it, you called him through your friend? You yes. Him, my okay. friend called and said, I want to fix you up with somebody, uh-huh. work-wise. You right. know. And, uh, and so I remember um, on Sunday, I had to give, you know, so I went up there and I, I said, I have this movie. I think you'd be so great in it. Wait, this is at Jack's house? I went to, up to Jack's house, yeah. This is like the famous Mulholland Drive mm-hmm. house he's been at forever? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Everything about that house is famous. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and like Warren Beatty is next door or something, isn't he? Uh, he's down the street. Okay. <clears throat> um, but, uh, yeah, so he said to me, you know, I pitched him the whole thing, and I think he was uh, happy to hear something ahead of time, but surprised that I was sort of talking to him that early. But I remember him saying, oh, I've always wanted to do a tuxedo comedy. Wow. So I said, wow, I never heard that expression. He said, well, that's what this is, right? I said, kind of. I get what you, <laughs> you mean. You want it to be. Yeah. No, no, I get what he means is, uh, you know, I think he was referencing screwballs where the guys were in tuxedos, mm-hmm. a certain kind of comedy, you know, um, that was, uh, you, you know, a certain kind of writing, right. uh, a certain kind of relationships. So um, he certainly, you know, you don't expect the, the person to say to you, and I did this with Meryl, and it's complicated. I think I may have met with her early. You don't expect them to say, I'm going to be in your movie. Of course, you don't expect that. You haven't written it yet. But I, I have thought that it's helpful for them to know I'm writing something for them. They're, doesn't, they're not, it's not going to keep them from taking another movie, but it's just, you know, somehow you're in the queue in their minds. Right. So it worked out the times I've done it. And then helpful for you, I assume you can write with their oh voices. Oh, my God. Then the fact that he didn't hate it was all I needed to know. <laughs> Because if he, you know, just if it was like, oh, I don't, I could, I just, if the door was open at all, then I was going to write it for him and only him. Right. And I think that's still a little flattering for actors to know someone's writing for them. Completely. Yeah. You know? Um, and then you finished the script and you sent it to him. And then even though he said he was interested in the pitch, I mean, obviously there's still a giant chasm between that and him actually signing on. So. Oh, yeah. And like. How does Nine that months go by, right? You with no communication. And at this point, do you go through the agents, or do you still use your friend and go talk to? No, him? well, in his case, you mean? Um, uh-huh. I went through his agent. Okay. And um, and I and I sent him a letter. Do you remember? I said, I'm pretty sure I sent him a letter and said, "Do you remember when I came up to your house and I met with you?" Go. I've been doing it all this time. I didn't forget about it. I've actually been at work every day on it, but right. I'm done, and I'd love you to read it. And I sent it to him. And I didn't hear for a week. It was the longest week ever. I bet. Very long week. And then there he was on the phone. Oh, man. And there he, he was. And he loved it. He, he, he really did. I, I, I must say, he, was, he said the nicest things to me about my writing of any actor I've ever worked with. Wow. Because he's a writer, you know. He started as a writer, so he, he gets the process, and he, underst- he loved the part, and he loved what the movie was about. 
it was the greatest call of my life. I bet. It's, I mean, that's also just such a nice thing because he's worked with some of the great screenwriters of all time. <clears throat> I mean, Robert Town and Warren Beatty and Elaine May and on and on and on. Kubrick. Kubrick, yeah, just Yeah, he's worked with some biggies. No, um, uh, uh, Jim Brooks. Right, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I was uh, thrilled and proud and honored and humbled. You know, I was thrilled. I just think he's the greatest actor. So it was exciting. Yeah, and and so, but but all of these actors, Nicholson and and Diane Keaton and and De Niro and. Um, well, Diane, you know, I had done some movies with. I right. Baby Boom with her and Two Father of the Bride movies and and. Uh, it's funny, just yesterday she and I were talking because I said to her, do you realize this is the 15th anniversary of Something's Gotta Give? And she said, no, I can't believe it. And she said, do you remember when you first pitched me the idea? I said, totally, I can remember what I ordered at the restaurant. Yes, we went out to eat together. And she said to me, is this off topic or do you want me to No, I love it. Oh, okay. <laughs> Please. So she said to me, um, she's, you know, I pitched her the movie too. It was before I went to Jack. Uh-huh. And... Uh, I pitched her the whole thing, and she said, well, who do you want for the for the guy? I said, oh, I only see Jack Nicholson in it. And she said, well, forget it. <laughs> she said, you're not getting him, and right. he's not going to do a movie with me. And I said, well, you're nuts. Of course he wants to do a movie with you, and I may not get him, maybe, but uh, let me try. And she just kept telling me over and over, you're nuts. This is never happening. And that's what she said to me yesterday on the phone. You remember me telling wow. you how crazy you were? I said, yeah, yeah I do. They did Reds together a million years ago. They did Reds together, but according to her, they hadn't seen each other in a really long time. So once he said yes and she said yes, I said, let's all get together. Wow. So I said, Jack, I'm going to bring her up here. Let's let's uh, see each other again after all these years. So that was just a really cool moment because I got there first. And she got there about 10 minutes later. And then I just watched them. And it was like... There's my movie. I'm watching my movie. Wow. Were they? Yeah, it was, a, it was this great two shot, you know, oh my <laughs> God. standing in front of me. That's such an old Hollywood kind of amazing moment. Diane Keaton and Jack Nicholson at his Mulholland Drive house, you know, getting together to talk movies. And also, they were debating whether they had seen each other since Reds. Wow. And she said, don't you remember once we were at so-and-so's party and I waved to you across the room? I said, <laughs> yeah, Keats, I remember that. Yeah, 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 like that. Wow. Mm-hmm. And do they, um, is it the kind of thing where they start uh, reading together or they're just talking about their characters? We didn't have, we didn't, we didn't crack open the script. We just hung out yeah. and had a good time and said, let's all make a movie together. That's great. Let's is that, do it. Is that yeah, important like to that. you to, to get your cast sort of um, get a camaraderie going among your cast members before a movie? It's ideal, but you, it's rare. It's actually rare. Yeah. Um, over the years, rehearsing rehearsal time has been less and less because people are not in the same cities generally. Right. Right. So um, it's hard. And it's complicated. Uh, we were in New York, so Meryl was there and Alec was there, and Steve has a place there, so we could all get together. But but it wasn't that easy to organize everybody's schedule. Right. Um but, but, I mean, all those names, Meryl Streep and, and Jack Nicholson and De Niro and, and Diane Keaton, were you giant fans of theirs in the 70s? Were you going to their movies? Were you a film buff in the 70s before you started, before Private Benjamin? Uh, yes, to everything. <laughs> I was a film buff. I was a fan of theirs. I went to a lot of movies. Um, Where were you living? Were you California or New York? I'm, no, I'm not from New York. I'm from Philadelphia. Okay. And I moved here in um, 1972. Okay. So I came really young. I was 22. So 
I came here fairly young and kind of grew up here in a way. Yeah. Um, and you were going, you were going to see, you know, The Godfather and The Godfather Two with with Keaton and De Niro. And... Yeah, I remember standing in line in the snow in Philadelphia to see the movie. Uh-huh. I remember once I was in a restaurant when I was a, I had a job as a story editor. I don't think that's a job anymore. They call them creative execs now. But it was called a story editor back then. So I was a story editor working at the Goldwyn Studios, and I went to this place for lunch where I used to go all the time. And there was a picture like a shared booth, like like it's a U shape. And so um, actually my sister and I were sitting on one side, and then the other side of the U got filled up. And it was uh, Harry Giddes and Jack Nicholson came in and sat wow. there. I was so freaked out and so scared and so excited. I couldn't eat my food, and I kept... <laughs> You know, I just was, you know, that feeling when you, like, forget how to swallow. <laughs> You're not quite sure how to be. So, yes, I was a huge, huge fan of these people. Right. God, that must be such an amazing feeling to now be able to go to their houses and pitch them your ideas. Well, it's it's thrilling, yeah. It's thrilling because they're so great. They're so great at what they do. And, and you know, they, they're the dream, yeah. you know, to get. But, um, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, when I'm saying that, I was 22 then. When I went to his house with Diane, I was 50. Right. <laughs> right. So you lost so some I of that giddiness. It wasn't the next week uh-huh. after being unable to swallow that I showed up there with a script. Right. <laughs> a lot of years went by. Um, but I do want to go back to the beginning a little bit, stroll through your IMDb just a little bit. I promise we won't be exhaustive in any way. But your very first screenplay, you were nominated for an Oscar for, which was Private Benjamin. Um, that is a pretty rare, I would imagine, achievement. Uh, Actually, I think a lot of first screenwriters get, I think that's when you get nominated. <laughs> what are you talking about? First screenwriters, yeah. I mean... No, your first movie, yes, it's true. The lot, yeah. But wait, first of all, was this the first Lady screenplay you had ever written? Juno. Oh, yes, it was. So, uh, I'm oh, sorry, no, no, but no, I'm going to disagree w- with you. <laughs> no, what I, I, didn't mean, I didn't mean everyone's first script. There, uh-huh. I think uh, the Academy likes to nominate people's first movies. I see. So if you've been lucky enough to get your first movie made, your first script made, um, and it works, I'm not saying they'll pick you out of you know a movie they've never heard of. But if but I do think that they tend to honor uh, writers early in their career. Uh huh. Um, Except for this year, the writer was ninety. Oh right, right. Call me by your name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But uh, you know, I think probably one of the reasons for that is that you know it's 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 people who are first getting into the business that have original voices and it doesn't just sound like everybody else it doesn't just sound like formula right. it sounds like something right. that they've been thinking about their whole lives is that and what it pre- was a feminist comedy you know and for the time for 1980 that was uh, not a movie anybody else was really making right um I-, I love the movie um is it one you look back on fondly or do you wish you could rewrite the whole thing no i look back on it fondly Good. um yeah i i think she was the perfect it was a it was a really good match of a part and an actress, so that always makes it great. You know, when you struggle with somebody, those then you wish you could have done something differently. But there was no struggle there. Did you write it for Goldie Hawn, or was she cast yeah. afterwards? You did. Mm-hmm. So you had some kind of relation. You and your husband had some kind of relationship with her before. Um, I did. I knew her. I the the job I had that I was a, when I mentioned I was a story yeah. editor. I was a story editor for Ray Stark, who was a he was the biggest producer in Hollywood. Right. Uh, I mean, literally, he really was. Very, very powerful guy at the time. 
uh, did all his movies at Columbia. I was his story editor. That's a great first job. Yeah, well, I had, I've had other first jobs that weren't great, but I can call that my first job. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great job for so someone in their job in 20s. The business. Yeah. yeah. So, um, it was, yeah, it was a terrific job because the uh, people that came in and out of the office were like John Houston, and one day Goldie Hawn came in. And, uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, Robert Redford came in for meetings. It was just, so I, I was introduced to the movie business through, um, just, I was thinking I'd had a job interview for Martin Scorsese to be his assistant, which wow. I didn't get. I always regret it because I was just thinking it was a great job. But actually, I would have loved to have been his assistant. Yeah. It was He was looking for an assistant for, um, what was the movie after Mean Street? Uh, before Taxi Driver? Yeah, something between those two movies. Yeah, that's a good question. I'm not sure. Uh, anyway, I think that's, or maybe it was for Mean Street. Anyway, it was really, really early in his career. And, um, but I didn't get the job, and I uh, I felt very bad about myself. And I, you know, I only for about ten years went over what what did I say wrong? Anyway, um, other than that kind of job, which would have put me more in the center of the world of movies, then this job was more like a big time producer. So it was fun. It was fun. But anyway, so I was a story editor, worked with writers. Anyway, Goldie came in for a meeting with him one day. Um, she was pretty hot. I think she had won an Oscar and, you know, everybody knew her from laughing and she was making movies and doing great. And he ran into my office and he said to me, um, I have a meeting with Goldie Hawn. He said, I'm going to be late. You're a girl. Go meet with her. Oh my God. He, says, he said, you're a girl. Go sit with her. So he left us. So I went into his office. He wasn't there. And I said, I'm sorry. He's in a meeting. And we started chatting and we just really hit it off. And when I left working for him, she and I had stayed in touch. She would send me scripts to read, and, you know, she was so nice. I loved her. And she said, will you come uh, work with me? So what a lot of women are doing now with production companies, she was really, like, the, one of the very first actresses to do that. Hmm. I said, um, you know, I'm going to try my hand at writing. And then uh, Charles and our friend Harvey Miller and myself came up with the idea for Private Benjamin because I had this ongoing relationship with her. We thought she'd be kind of perfect for it. So we went and pitched it to her. And she loved it. She loved it. So we wrote it for her. So we still and we okay, wrote it for her, and she produced it with us. So wow. so we it all came together that way. But I didn't know I didn't work for her. Other than that, I don't think. Wow, that's interesting. So that's so. I mean, it's just so funny to hear because it's so the opposite of my experience. You know, from your first movie all the way through, it's something that something's got to give. Maybe um, further than that, you come up with the idea. Then you go to the A-list actor, pitch them the idea, get them at least somewhat on board, then go off and write it for them. Um, which is a pretty ideal way to go it about it. It wasn't always like that, though. I mean, there are movies like uh, like Father of the Bride. Mm-hmm. Steve Martin came to us, so we knew we had him, so we could write for him. But mm-hmm. um, Baby Boom uh, was not written for Diane Keaton, hmm. but we were very lucky to get her. But but I don't think we had thought we could get her, so we didn't even think about her. Right. Um, so it wasn't always like that, but it, it did start that way because Goldie approached me to work with her, and so I had that relationship with her, so that was great. Right. But there were, you know, a decade after that where it wasn't always like that. Right. Can I ask where your uh, where your alias came from? It's, my parents. Uh, Patricia Irving? Yes. That's my mom and dad. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Um, I think Soderbergh does the same thing. His parents' names, too? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, Okay, fair enough. It's so funny. It's so long ago. Like, I can't even remember exactly. I guess we were trying to not, I don't know, it wasn't our movie. You yeah. Know? So we, 
But yeah, you still found us out somehow. <laughs> IMDb did anyway. <laughs> Um, I mean, do you have, uh, you know, it's, it's always such a funny business. I never saw that one either, by the way. Oh my God. It's, it's a fun, I mean, it's a, I don't know if it holds up, but when I was a kid, I loved yeah. it. Um, but th- you know, there's so much, obviously there's so much rewriting that goes on in these big studio movies. Do you ever get asked to, um, come, I'm sure you do to come in and either polish or rewrite, um, studio features? Um, you like you mean like production rewrite where they're in production? Sure, that uh, or you know that. to get no, the green No, I've never light. been asked to do that. Um, but I have, you know, I've done a rewrite. What women want was a rewrite. Okay, and I'm not the credited writer on it, um, but I, I wrote um, six months on that movie. Okay. Um, so yes, I've done it. And do you tend to? I mean, Father it, of the Bride was a rewrite. Oh, is that right? Well, it it, it was. No, yeah. no, no. It was also a remake, but it was also a rewrite. Okay. There was another draft um, that I gather they weren't uh, happy with, so so we took it over. Right. Do you find um, do you, do you enjoy that? I mean, it's obviously a very different experience than just starting from the blank page. You know, um, it's a very different experience, and and the ambition behind it is always different. You know, I mean, in the case of Father of the Bride, we were still getting our careers going, even though we had made Private Benjamin and, and another little movie. This, this was sort of um, a leap into uh, a big comedy with a big movie star. So we were very happy and excited mm-hmm. to, to do it. But, but rewrites, you know, at this point in my life, I don't think they would... You know, I've, I've directed for 20 years everything I've written, so it would be a different reason to do a rewrite. I don't know. I'm not sure what the reason would be at this point. Right. Um, sticking with Father of the Bride for a second. Um, yeah. Were, were, did you love the original film, the Spencer Tracy? I did not, which made it a hard job to accept. <laughs> <laughs> but Steve came calling. I love Steve Martin more than I can ever tell you. But no, that was actually a drawback for me. And wait, was Steve a fan of you? Like, obviously he was a fan of yours, but do you know what made Steve think of you for Father of the Bride? No. Okay. No, I guess he liked our movies. Yeah. You know, uh, and I was just a huge fan of his, as was Charles. But I didn't love the original, and I also wasn't sure I wanted to make a movie about a wedding because I'm not so sure I believed in that. Hmm. And that that's not, you know, was not a particular uh, goal of mine as a woman. You know, like the, like the whole wedding thing was not my thing. Mm-hmm. So I struggled with that a little bit, but I was a fairly new mom. So when when I read the original, I looked at it through the father's point of view and what it's like to lose your child, and that hooked me into it, that your child's not going to live with you anymore. Your child's going to go on without you. Right. So that was my way in. Um, and how did you go about adapting it? Did you take the original screenplay and rewrite it, or did you just start fresh with the concept? Oh, no. I, um, I, I think, you know, I also did The Parent Trap, which was a remake. Mm-hmm. And I think when a movie works, whether or not I love Father of the Bride, the movie worked, and, you know, if they're remaking a movie, there's some, there's a very good reason something about it works and resonates. So it's my advice to not veer very far off of it. You have to modernize it, and you have to contemporize it, but it's, I don't feel it's the job of the, of the current screenwriter to, you know, throw the script up in the air and start over. Mm-hmm. Then you're not, you're not remaking a movie. 
But I would think, you know, Steve Martin is so different from Spencer Tracy. That alone. Oh, yeah. Our, our version was much more comedic, for right. sure. I mean, and, and we talked to Steve about that, you know. Spencer Tracy is absolutely brilliant in the movie, but he's Spencer Tracy. If you have Steve Martin, you're going to want to use what's in that deck of cards, you right. know. So it was much more geared towards him. But the sentiment, the emotion, the the father having difficulty letting go of his daughter right. um, is exactly the same. Right. And and by the way, Goodrich and Hackett are wonderful writers. And, uh, you know, we use their dialogue whenever we could. Hmm. Did it feel easier to write than some of your originals or just as difficult? Different. Yeah. It's, well, it's not as difficult because you know exactly where it's going. Right no real need to do the outline because the outline's been done. Um, you, you know, you, you know what the acts are and yeah. where the act breaks. I mean, so that's, it's easier. Yeah. I mean, skipping the outline phase alone yeah. sounds pretty sweet. Yeah. I mean, you do your own kind of outline, but it's not something that takes months and months of your life because the, the, the outline is to figure out where the acts are and where the movie goes and how you get there. Right. That's been done. But then the individual scenes, you know, I'm sure if, if we looked at them back to back, you know, Sometimes they'd be the same. Sometimes they wouldn't be the same. Right. And would uh, Steve Martin, you know, he's such a great writer. Did he contribute on set? Did he do improv? Did he um, uh, just stick to the script or what? He he did stick to the script. He's he's a very. Um, he, it's very the, the way he the way he approaches doing an improv is out of utter respect and. He's just the most appropriate person in the world, actually. You know, so he would say, if he had an idea, he, you know, like, let's say we're on take two, he'd come up to us and say, oh, I, I have an idea. When you have it the way you love it, can I try it? We'd say, yeah, of course. And you can do six more takes before you even get to that idea. <laughs> so he's super cool and, and um, Right. respectful. That makes sense. Very, very respectful being a writer. He's very respectful right. of the writing and doesn't want to mess around with it. Right. Yeah. But yeah, sometimes, I mean, I could tell you some of the things that he came up with, you know, because I just remember <laughs> laughing hysterically, you know, but by the way, he's the first one to run over to the monitor afterwards, by the way, and look at that version and go, no, 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 it was better before. <laughs> wow. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, he doesn't love everything just because he came up with it. Right. Uh, yeah, he's the coolest. Do you remember any moments? I mean, I've I've seen that movie so many times. Do you remember any moments um, that it felt like a real collaboration with him? That something he came up with based on you know what you guys wrote or well, like on? okay, there's uh, there's a scene um, where there oh, this is Father of the Bride too. Sorry, but it's a good one. Okay. In the sequel, there's a scene where they're rushing to the hospital, but he's taken a sleeping pill because he's been going to the hospital for false alarms to few previous nights so he takes one of Frank's sleeping pills which mm -hmm. knocks him out completely right he, i think he takes two of them actually and on the way to the hospital like some gang kids come up in a car next to them and sort of harassing them and he, <laughs> marty lowers the window which is what we had written but steve came up with that his face was attached to the window so as he rolls the window down That's steve's great. head goes down and then his head comes <laughs> it's right. pretty funny. Um, and in Father of the Bride, I'm pretty sure he came up with spitting his champagne back in because the right. uh, father of the groom goes on so long with his toast that Steve just started to sip, and then he realized the guy was still talking, and right. he it back into the glass. I love that. Yeah, that's, that's great. pretty funny. 
Um, but I want to uh, I want to go back one movie uh, or a little bit to uh, to Baby Boom. Um, mm-hmm. You told me when we talked the other day the most amazing story about um, you know your writing of the film, and I guess oh, yeah, was I it know. the studio who decided they wanted to bring someone on to consult? Um, uh, it's almost that. Yes, um, the, the the movie was written on spec, which means that we did not have a buyer for it before we wrote it. And was um, it a purely original idea? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, hard to figure out that movie. Extremely hard. Um, that was a, a lot of walks around the block. I remember that. It was a hard movie to, to nail. Um, but uh, anyway, we finished it, and then it went out to several studios at the same time to see who would want it. Mm-hmm. And MGMUA at the time had a deal with Billy Wilder. He was a consultant to the studio. He had offices there. And so... And how old was he at this point? I would love to look that up. I don't know. Okay. So it was 1986. Given that All Was Equal and a couple places liked it, that being one of them, we asked our agent, Jeff Berg, at the time at ICM, we said, can you find out if we sold it to them, if Wilder could work with us? Oh, it was your idea. That's great. Well, no, he was there. Uh-huh. He was a person there. But, but we would like, you know... To us, that was the best reason to sell it to that studio. Yeah, completely. Because he was working there, and, and apparently the job was, yeah, to kind of work with the writers that are making movies for them. So that was all arranged. Wow. Um, so and we, yeah, so we spent a couple of months working with him. Um, they bought the script, they were going to make it, but we had to do a rewrite for budget because it was too expensive. And we said, well, as long as we're doing the rewrite, let's can we pitch with Billy Wilder and, you know, see if he has any ideas. His ideas were not about helping the budget, by the way, <laughs> right. but who cared? Yeah. It was an excuse to um, be in the room with him. So you were a giant fan. Oh, no, insane. I mean, I was, yes, I've had a copy of The Apartment on my desk for 35 years. What do you mean a copy of The Apartment? The DVD, the VHS? Uh, no, no, the, the screenplay. Pre-DVD. You know, like it's a paperback copy of it. Um, the, and I also have a photo in my office of... Um, I.A.L. Diamond and Billy Wilder working together. That's so funny. I have a photo. Are they on a couch together with Billy making a funny face? No, he just looks like he's looking at him. But um, it's probably from the same shoot. Yeah, probably right. On um, a black sofa, yeah. They're the best. Wait, I always forget, though. So I.A.L. I-A-L Diamond, that was after Bracket, right? That was Wilder's partner right. for the second half of his career. Right, right. right. Um, so... My God! So you are literally getting to work with you know one of no, the great it was so screenwriters of all time. That, I mean, I, my stomach was in knots <laughs> every minute of every day I was with him. It was so exciting. Where would you guys meet on the lot? Uh, we would meet. Well, it wasn't in a lot. They were in a building on um, Camden Drive, okay. Beverly Hills, or Cannon Drive. Uh, oh right, Cameron Crowe talks about going. No, and no, not doing that the building. For, that oh. was Billy's. No, he was on and an, right around there. But no, they gave him an office. I think it was. I think it was Camden. Okay. It was a small office building, and he had an office in there. And uh, I remember it was very well decorated. It was very okay. cool. And um, good art on the walls, and, you know, it was great. And we, so we meet in his office. Yeah, because we didn't have an office there. Right. So we'd uh, go in and meet with him, and um, he loved to go to lunch and, Ugh. you know. Would he tell old stories? Every minute of the day he was telling stories. <laughs> I would say it was... <laughs> I'd say the days were, and we weren't with him all day, but we were with him probably like three hours at a time. But it was, you know, two hours of storytelling and an hour of work, which, you know, 
it couldn't have been better. Yeah, not Could a bad not way to better. spend a day. Yeah, jeez. And I'm, I think I may have mentioned this to you before, but I remember going out to lunch with him, and um, he sort of told you what to order in the restaurant. <laughs> what so, do you mean? Well, like one day he was telling me about the egg salad. It was so great at this place. And I said, oh, it's great. Right? You know, and then I ordered a turkey sandwich. He said, no, I told you to get the egg salad. And I said, oh, I'm sorry, I meant egg salad. <laughs> I didn't realize it. I didn't realize I had to order it. Yeah, you got to follow the d- great know, director's he orders. Great. He would laugh at things you'd say. He'd listen to your ideas. He'd have good ideas. Um, wow. And some of his ideas were dark for us. You know, like the beginning of Baby Boom, he wanted, he, his idea was that we start on the funeral of the parents of the baby. Jesus. Do not start on the Diane Keaton character. Start on the funeral in the, he said, I think he asked us, how did the parents die? We, we said maybe a skiing accident or something like that. So he said, okay, so we're, we're like in some European ski resort right. kind of place. And we're in a church or we're in a, wherever the funeral takes place. And um, there is a bassinet draped in black Jesus. with a crying baby in it. Wow. Dark, and dark, Billy. It's kind of dark. It's From the man dark. who brought you double indemnity. And, you know, and Baby a monkey in Sunset Boulevard, you right, know. Right, right. So, um, so we laughed a lot and stuff, but then we would leave and say, do we really want to start at the funeral? You know, would, would anyone really put that baby at the funeral and drape her bassinet? <laughs> Is that what you call it? You know, the old-fashioned little thing? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in black. It was just, you know... It was a little tough. Yeah. Um, um, but while you're in the room with him, of course, you're just, yes, sir, yes, sir. Well, it sounded, it was funny. <laughs> it, there was something funny. And we tried it. I know we tried uh-huh. it, but then we couldn't bring ourselves to really go with it. And um, and he had a, he had a constantly thought the baby should pass wind, as he put it. <laughs> I mean, at any opportunity, he'd say, and then let's just end on, you know, the baby passes wind, and then wow. we cut. You know, he really, um, I think it was, I can't remember what was going on in cinema at that moment, but <laughs> there was some kind of new kind of little grosser comedies going on. I think he was feeling like I could never have done that in one of my movies. Wow. Billy Wilder at 80 years old telling <laughs> you to have the baby fart a lot. That's yeah. amazing. Yeah. But he, you also, you sent me an email where you said that, um, you know, one of the things Billy said was, don't say it, show it dramatically and with humor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Which is yeah. great. It's a pretty good note. Yeah. Um, and yeah, because I found um, when you called me about doing this podcast, yeah. I had been recent. Uh, Charles, my ex partner, had recently given me. We he put the little tapes that we record all our writing sessions on on um, on a disc, and so I got them, and I was just listening to them and catching up with, and it was really wild hearing him, and hearing me. Yeah. And, 35 years old or whatever I was. That's so great. And yeah, it was interesting. Yeah. You should do something with those tapes. I mean, that's a, a writer session with you three, you know, coming up with Baby Boom. It's a, that's pretty, that's movie history. Well, thanks. I, yeah, I don't, <laughs> I have to listen to more of it to hear what else is in there. But when I re-listened to it, I heard a very good idea that we should have taken. Uh, one of Billy Wilder's ideas? Yeah. <laughs> you should yeah, write it now. I, I mean, well, I don't think I can go back in there. But his idea was that when the big uh, company wants to buy her baby food company at the end of the movie, uh-huh, sure, you know, it's kind of like a Trump situation. Uh, buy it because they want to just get rid of it, not because they want it. They want to oh, kill right. it. Catch and kill. Yeah. Catch and kill. Mm-hmm. 
Um, that was good. I bet I was just being stubborn at the time and couldn't see that. Right. I think that's a really good idea. Interesting. Did you stay in touch with Billy at all after the baby boom sessions ended? Um, very slightly, you know. I remember yeah. bumping into him on the street one day and um, said, where are you going? He said, to the bookstore, and I walked with him <laughs> to the bookstore. Um, Back when there were bookstores you could walk to? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I remember that day. That's fun. But, but no, well, no, not generally. Um, you know, I asked you, as I ask everybody, um, if there's, you know, one clip, one scene from someone else's work that you would want to listen to and then talk about from a craft perspective, you picked a scene from The Apartment by Billy Wilder. Um, so I want to play that clip. Um, just to sort of set it up, you know, Jack Lemon is Baxter. He's a middle management employee at a big New York company. They are currently throwing their holiday party at this point in the movie. He escapes the chaos going into an empty office with Miss Kubelik, the elevator girl played by Shirley MacLaine. Baxter has a big crush on Miss Kubelik, and what he doesn't know is that she's been having an affair with his boss, Mr. Sheldrake. So what were you going to say? Right, and the scene that precedes this scene she finds out, Ms. Kubelik finds out that he's had a long line of girlfriends because the current secretary tells her, oh, you're the new number kind of thing. So right. she realizes she's not special because he's been saying he's going to leave his wife for her. So when she comes into this scene, she's shattered because she realizes she's just the girl of the moment. Right. And, um, and, and this... the other one says, I think she even says something like, yeah, he always says he's going to leave his wife for all the things right. that, in fact, he has said. So she's shattered as the scene begins. And what I like about this scene is that he becomes shattered. In the... So they're both pretty broken people, but neither really knows what the other is shattered about. Right. Uh, oh, which is which is great drama, of course. Um, and and so just uh, for listeners, you know, the silence that we hear in the beginning of the scene is Baxter trying on the new hat that he just bought himself. Um, he's just gotten a promotion as a thank you from his bosses for lending them his apartment, which uh, they're all using to cheat on their wives in. Um, and then toward the end of the scene, Baxter sees that Miss Kublex, uh, he sees her compact um, and realizes that she's one of the women being brought to his apartment. Um, okay, let's play the scene. Ms. Kublik, I would like your honest opinion. I've had this under my desk for a week. It cost me $15. I haven't been able to get up enough nerve to wear it. It's what they call the junior executive model. What do you think? I guess I made a boo-boo, huh? Really? You wouldn't be ashamed to be seen with somebody in a hat like this? Of course not. Maybe if I wore it a little more to one side. How's that? Is that better? Much better. Well, since you wouldn't be ashamed to be seen with me, how about the three of us going out tonight? You, me, and the bowler. <laughs> we'll stroll down Fifth Avenue, sort of break it in. This is a bad day for me. Oh, I understand. Christmas family and all that. I'd better get back to my elevator. I don't want to be fired. You don't have to worry about that. I've got quite a bit of influence in personnel. You know Mr. Sheldrake? Why? Well, he and I are like that. He sent me a Christmas card. See? Makes a cute picture. I thought maybe I'd put in a word for you. Would Mr. Sheldrake get you a little promotion? How would you like to be an elevator starter? I'm afraid there are too many girls around here with seniority over me. 
No problem. Why don't we discuss it sometime over the holidays? I can call you and pick you up. We have a big unveiling. Are you sure this is the right way to wear this? I think so. Here. You don't think it's tilted a little too much? I mean, after all, this is a conservative firm. I don't want people to think I'm an entertainer. It's broken. Yes, I know. I like it that way. Makes me look the way I feel. Your phone. Yes? Uh, just a minute. If you don't mind, this is uh, sort of personal. Have a nice Christmas. Yes, Mr. Sheldrake. No, I didn't forget. The tree is up in the Tom and Jerry mixes in the refrigerator. Yes, sir. Same to you. Oh, it's such a I good mean, scene. it couldn't be better. Yeah. And so what is it you love about that scene so much? The shape of it, the content of it, the shape of it I absolutely adore, meaning, well, I, I love coming into it that we know, and you can hear it in her voice, <clears throat> she's distraught, right. and he is all thrilled about his new promotion, and he bought a hat to look like the older guys, right. and so sweet. he's yeah. trying to flirt with her, and, you know, and you just, the difference in the quality of their voices. He's very up, she's kind of slow. And by the way, I, I thought I may not be able to hear it, so I pulled the scene up in front of me on my computer. Mm-hmm. He stuck to every single word, literally, but she changed some of them. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> um, but only little things. So she changed it this to a that. But, um, <clears throat> Was this, this is early in her career, right? Shirley McLean? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. She was very young. I think she was in her mid-20s. Wow. Um, and then when he wait, hold on, there's just such a good moment where they, um, when he brings out, he says he knows the boss and brings out the Christmas card, which just runs, just salt in the wound, you know, because it's season greetings from Emily Jeff, Tommy Jeff Jr. and Figaro. And by the way, that's the dog. And when I read this, I thought, I wonder how long they worked on that word, Figaro. Let's (laughs) name the dog. That's so fun that you've worked with Billy Wilder, so you know a little bit how his writing mind no, works. No, I think so anybody. Can... <laughs> Figaro doesn't just come up, doesn't just land there with Tommy and Jeff Jr. Right. You know, Figaro took somewhere. Um, but yeah, no, no, he definitely, he, he, he didn't skim over stuff, that's for sure. But, um, but the fact that he's talking about Sheldrake, and I know him, and shows his family, it's just, it's all so hard. And then they we get that level of a scene and then it's very crafty how they get back to the hat. Right. So you like the hat, you don't think I'm tilting it too much. And so she brings out her compact, which we know from an earlier scene he found in the, in his house, meaning one of the girls that was taken there for sex left a compact and he returned it to Mr. Sheldrake and he noticed that it was broken. Right. So when she, so when she says, here, take a look at yourself and she turns that compact towards him and he sees the broken glass and then he realizes you're the girl Sheldrake is having sex with at my house. And now this scene flips, and she, and now he's the devastated one. Mm. And then on top of that, who calls for Sheldrake? Right. And now he's got to 
tell him, yes, I've got the Tom and Jerry mix, which is another great choice of words, I think. It is. Because he knows she is going back to his house right now. Right. So it's just the kind of scene that's just brilliantly constructed. You're right. It, it, it's such a giant arc for him from it's, coming it's, in so yeah, excited. Everybody, everybody starts one place, goes to another. You know, it's right. horrible for both of them. Right. And, and then, meanwhile, uh, and their romance is kind of budding through this, right. his unrequited love and her heartbreak. Right. Um, and, and just the dramatic irony of the audience at this point knows that she's the one who's been having an affair at his apartment, but he doesn't know it yet. And so the audience is just sitting there sort of, you're on the edge of your seat a you're little bit. You're dying for him. Right. Waiting for him to find out. And then the moment he sees the compact and finds out, you just, you sink realizing you sink. that he knows now. You sink because it's just, uh, and, and the quality of his voice on the phone with Sheldrake, if you ever yes. hear that again, is completely different than his the quality of his voice in the rest of the scene where it's very up here and he's very excited and then it's yes Mr. Sheldrake right. no I didn't forget that's such a great choice that he made yeah and it's an interesting choice too to have her leave the part to, to at, for Baxter to ask her to leave before he reveals that it's Sheldrake that's on the phone yeah totally yeah he want, it's, it's a little bit more powerful you know if she was there it would be a, it would play very differently um, and, and you I, know and then the end when the music was playing this is what the script says he hangs up, stands there for a moment, the bowler still on his head, the noise from the party washing over him. He slowly crosses to the clothes tree, picks up his coat, a new black Chesterfield with the coat over his arm. He starts out of the office. You know, his dreams have just ended. Right. Right. And now he's got to walk through a party. Um, it, and by it, the way, there's a great parenthetical uh-huh. under Bud, uh, C.C. Baxter, you know, before Yes, Mr. Sheldrake, the parenthetical description of that they gave for him is every word hurts. Ooh. That's great. Do you write parentheticals in your script? Oh, yes. Actor cues, yeah. Yeah. Well, if somebody wrote for you, if you're an actor, every word hurts, just say thank you. Right. Just say thank you because it's such great direction. Right. But, I mean, you've also, you've worked with such extraordinary, I mean, really, the greatest living actors, Meryl Streep, Jack Nicholson, De Niro, they don't mind getting those actor cues in parentheses? They've never said anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when I know Meryl's going to be in the movie or Bob's going to be in the movie, I may take a couple out of the script, but I'm never going to take it out before they read it the first time. Right. But I may over time slip some of them out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it's how I see it, and I want them to know how I see it. Right. Um, going back to the scene for a second, you know, it's also a really interesting choice that Wilder made to have this giant party taking place just off camera so that you can hear it, and you sort of you v- are very aware of it the entire time, that they're secluded in this little office, but there's this huge party going on outside. And it, 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 it would be a dramatically different scene if... If this oh, took place somewhere that's else. That's such a good point. Yeah. Everybody's getting drunk. People are dancing on tabletops. People are making out in corners. And these two people are miserable. Right. And those are the two people you want to make a movie about. Right. Right. Um, okay. It's a perfect scene it, in a perfect movie. It really is. Could not agree more. Um, so, so one last movie of yours that I want to talk about before we wrap up here is um, Something's Gotta Give. Um, okay. And so... I guess I want to play a clip from the movie, but first, um, I think I read somewhere you had mentioned to me that you wrote the script and were, you know, thought you were finished with it, and then you showed it to James L. Brooks. Is that mm-hmm. right? Yes. And and what happened then? 
Um, I was friends with Jim, and I had worked on a script for close to a year. It was at one point 250 pages. It wow. took me months and months to get to cut it in half. And um, I talked to him a lot when I was writing it. He knew I was. I, he didn't know specifically what I was writing, but he knew I was working on something. So you talked I, to him just because he was a friend, or because yes. you felt there was a a relationship between this material and and his usual material. No, okay. because he no, because he. Was, <laughs> Does it seem like one of Thank you. Uh, no, it wasn't that. It was, um, no, because he was somebody I knew, and, yeah. I, you know, I knew what he was working on, he knew what I was working on, but that was about it. So then when I was finished, I thought I was really finished, but I thought, you know, people always say, who do you give your scripts to? I never really give them to anybody, because for years I wrote with my ex-husband, and so we had that. And um, anyway, so I thought he'd be a good person to read this script, mm-hmm. so I asked him to read it. And he came over to my house with the script under his wow. <laughs> under his arm, you know. What and a generous guy to to. I mean, he must get asked to read a lot of scripts. I would imagine. Yes, he's well. He, I think he really enjoys. Um, at least back then, I think he really enjoyed the process of helping people. He really right. did. You know, he produced a lot of people's movies. He worked. You know, he produced Jerry Maguire, and you know, I think he really liked the process of getting involved in someone else's movie. Yeah. And in TV, he's mentored. Of I course. mean, all the great 80s sitcoms are basically exactly. come from his work on Mary Tyler Moore and him overseeing everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And the thing about him is he's just ridiculously smart. So it, you can't really dismiss a lot of what he says. <laughs> right. As much <laughs> as you want to. <laughs> right. I think um, Broadcast News is about as perfect a movie yeah, as ever it's great. been made. It's yeah. absolutely great. Yeah. Okay, so he comes over, script under his yeah, arm, you're terrified. Yeah, I going to an early screening of that. Of Broadcast News? Yeah. Oh, I was, cool. And I was sitting right behind Albert, and um, I remember uh, Jim coming up to me later and saying, the length of your laugh, and I forget what the moment was, he said, was so thrilling. <laughs> you oh. for so long at this one part. That's great. I think, it, But I think it was what everybody was laughing. I think it was when Albert was sweating. Yes, when he's got his audition for the and it evening be anchor. Funnier. Oh my God, that's a great scene. Oh my God, that went on so long. Um, <laughs> yeah, All right, so, so Jim, he, sh- he shows up, yeah. So Jim came over and um, had questions, had some thoughts. Some things I thought were great. Some things, you know, I explained. Maybe I didn't want, didn't make that clear with that kind of stuff. But then he had um, one note. <coughs> Excuse me. He had one note that I thought was so smart um, because there's this running kind of bit in the movie where Diane Keaton dresses in turtlenecks and it's the middle of the summer and Jack confronts her about it. Why do you wear turtlenecks? And, you know, it's a whole thing. And basically she's not a character that wants to reveal too much. And that's why she wears turtlenecks and she's getting older and, it's, you know, she likes the way she looks in them and leave me alone, you know? Right. And um, so Jim said to me, so how does that character take her clothes off? <laughs> <laughs> And, yeah, just how you laughed. I laughed when he said it. And he said, don't you think there's a scene there? Wow. You know, you just have them having, I think you said you just have them. I don't, I don't remember the draft, but I guess they were already making love or they were already in the bed. Uh-huh. He said, how did those clothes come off? Don't you want to see that? That's great. That was his only note? No, but it's the only one I remember. <laughs> 15 years later. But he gave you the confidence to, to keep going? Did you do a big rewrite afterwards? Yes, I think I worked another. I think I worked another month, hmm. um, just from just things he said. He's he, his way of working was interesting because he he didn't say you know it'd be fun. What if he 
cuts her turtleneck off of her with a scissors. He doesn't have a solution, but also he's not there to have a solution or right. be writing it with me, you know. Right. So I appreciated that in a way. But yeah. but the question of how do her clothes come off, you know, it wasn't like I, you know, I said, okay, bye, and I closed my front door and ran in and had the answer. You know, I sat with that for a while. Right. Until I came up with it. But That's great. But I really like what I came up with, you know, and I think it's I think it's an original and good moment in the movie. But I would not have had that without him. Right. Yeah. That does that does feel sort of like his um, his role these days. I remember hearing Cameron Crowe speak um, and saying that Brooks, you know, pushed him so hard on Jerry Maguire. They went through triple digit drafts. They went through over a hundred drafts of that script, and it's just Brooks continuing to pull threads. I heard. Oh, pull through. Oh, really? That's a good expression. Uh, <laughs> I think Jim had told me there were 33 drafts. Yeah, Jim says that, and Cameron, who's actually writing it, says, <laughs> says 133. 133. <laughs> I see, yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, he asked a lot of questions. I mean, have dinner with him, you know? Yeah. You're exhausted at the end. <laughs> really? God, he seems like such an interesting guy. And and he's a Clippers fan, so. Yeah. yeah. Oh, what a perfect guy. Um, okay, I want to play a clip from Something's Gotta Give. So this is from early in the movie. Um, this is a scene you chose. This is... Diane Keaton, who plays a successful playwright, <clears throat> she sits down to dinner in her Hamptons house with her sister, who's a professor, played by Frances McDormand, and her daughter, played by Amanda Peet, and her daughter's much, much older boyfriend, played by Jack Nicholson. So those are the four voices that you're going to hear. Um, let's play the clip, and then we'll talk about it. Okay. Hard work, 10% talent so far. The talent part hasn't exactly kicked in yet. Oh, right. Right. What's your play about? About? Well, I'm not exactly sure, which is, it's a bit of a problem, but uh, so far, it's about a divorced woman, a writer. She's this high-strung, over-amped, controlling, know-it-all neurotic. Who's incredibly cute and lovable. Mm -hmm. It's a comedy. <laughs> so, how did you two meet? At a wine auction at Christie's. Harry was the big buyer of the night. I kept raising my paddle just to get her to smile at me. Before I knew it, I bought the entire collection. I mean, every known bottle of Chateau Margot. After that, the least she could do was share a bottle with me. Ever been married, Harry? No. No, I haven't. Wow. Now, why do you think that is? Well, some people just don't fit the mold. And so far, you know. Hey, if it ain't broke. Exactly. Wait a second. Aren't you like a famous bachelor? Well, I wouldn't say I'm famous. Yeah, didn't I read an article about you in New York Magazine? I guess some people find it interesting that I've escaped the noose for so long. That was the title of the article, The Escape Artist. I read that article. That was you? Well, you were once engaged to someone really big. Who was it? Joan Collins? No. No. Wait a minute. Okay, Carly Simon? Yeah, somebody cool like that. Somebody like that. Not Martha Stewart. No, not Martha Stewart, no. <laughs> you could just ask him. Oh. No, this is more fun. It's like I'm not here. Harry was once engaged to Diane Sawyer. What? Right. Diane Sawyer, I love her. I'm impressed. Yeah, women your age love that about me. You know what I mean. Yes, I do. And it's not a bad thing to say women your age. Oh, no, I'm sure it was a compliment. It's just uh, an accurate observation. It's so when was this, the engagement? A long time ago. 
She was just adorable. Lanky girl from Kentucky with the greatest pair of legs I have ever seen. Never understood her ending up on a job where she never showed him. You can't be serious. I mean, she's Diane Sawyer. She goes into caves in Afghanistan with a schmata on her head. Who cares about her legs? You know what? I hate to eat grud, but... Oh, wait. No. Come on. This is really fascinating, what's going on at this table. Zoe teaches women's studies at Columbia. Okay. So this is gonna hurt. No. Look, let's take you and Erica, for example. Zoe. Here, you've been around the block a few times. Am I right? What are you, around 60? 63. Oh, fantastic. Never married, which, as we know, if you were a woman, would be a curse. You'd be an old maid, a spinster, blah, blah, blah. So instead of pitying you, they write articles about you. Celebrate your never marrying. You're elusive and ungettable, a real catch. Then there's my gorgeous sister here. No, wait, Look, what? Geez. Listen, no, this is no, interesting. Listen, you listen to... Look at her. She is so accomplished. The most successful female playwright since who? Oh. Lillian Hellman. She's over 50, divorced, and she sits in night after night after night because the available guys her age want somebody, forgive me for saying this, honey, but they want somebody that looks like Marin. So the whole over 50 dating scene is geared towards men leaving older women out. And as a result, the women become more and more productive and therefore more and more interesting, which in turn makes them even less desirable because as we all know, men, especially older men, are threatened and deathly afraid of productive and interesting women. It is just so clear. Single older women as a demographic are about as fucked a group as can ever exist. <laughs> That's a great ending to the scene. Um, do you remember, it was a while ago, but do you remember writing the scene at all? Do I remember writing it? Um, I have more vivid memories of shooting it. Uh-huh. But yes, I, 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 yes, I remember writing this movie very well. Um, and so, I mean, the, the, the choice of... Um, you know, I mean, but, you, know, you know in the movie how she's writing, crying and writing and crying and uh-huh. writing and crying? That was me writing the movie. Oh, really? So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, so, so take the scene, though. Like, Frances McDormand's character, um, why, you know, she serves a really interesting purpose in the scene. Um, did you, was she in every draft of this scene? Oh, yes, yes, uh-huh. yes, yes. My scripts um, don't generally, even though this was a 250-page script, all of these scenes were in there, just sometimes they were longer, mm-hmm. you know, or there'd be a scene before this scene and maybe one after that no longer, that I felt I didn't need anymore, but but they're always in there. Right. Yeah. And was it's it... It's always in here. Yeah. Well, she's, uh, you know, she's she sort of wraps up what's going on in case you haven't caught on to it. Uh-huh. And she, by saying it out loud makes it just horrible. Right. It's such everybody. an uncomfortable scene. It's uncomfortable. for Well, it's horrible for Amanda Peet, who's on right. a date. <laughs> right. Person. And, you know, and it starts with Diane stuck on, the Diane character stuck on her play. That's part of the plot. It isn't until she meets this guy that she kind of gets rolling on mm-hmm. it. And, um, you know, so the scene starts with that, with uh, Diane, you know, saying she doesn't really know what her play is about, which is a horrible feeling. You know, somebody says, what's your movie about? And you don't quite know. Right. And you feel like a failure. So that, you know, so she's stumbling all over. And obviously it's about her. So it's kind of me writing her about her. Mm-hmm. So. Totally. But, uh... <laughs> That's why I said so. Who's incredibly cute and charming because, you know, you don't <laughs> want to see yourself as that kind of person. Right. Even though you know you are that as well. Right. Um, it would have been easy to write the scene with Jack as a total villain, though. And that's not really... 
He doesn't yeah. do anything wrong. Right. The man is just eating a bowl of pasta <laughs> and answering questions. Right. So, you know, but then they, the, the, the two women then, get, you know, take the focus off of Diane, and then Diane craftily turns it over to him, because you ever been married, Harry, means it gets it away from her. And that begins the whole Harry story. Right. Which highly entertains them and irritates them at the same time. Completely. And it is interesting. Yeah, um, Amanda Peet arguably... I mean, everybody is uncomfortable in the scene, but she has got to be the most uncomfortable seeing her mom, who is younger than her boyfriend, be, you know, grilling her boyfriend like this. Right. And at the same time, when he says, women your age love that about me, she then feels bad. I'm sure there's a shot of her looking at her mother. Right. Like, oh, I'm sorry, mom. Right. You know, the whole thing's embarrassing. And um, if you ever see this scene, you may notice in it at one point, Jack starts rubbing his heart, you know, because in the next scene, he has a heart attack. Right. And, you know, as an actor, he's very aware that perhaps before a heart attack, you're having some chest pain. So the chest pain begins in the scene. And when I talked to him about it later, he said, you know what I think, really? He said, I think he has a heart attack because it's love at first sight with Diane. Wow. And that's what almost kills him because he just never experienced it before. Wow. And that was not your intention? Love at first sight gives him a heart attack? Absolutely never. <laughs> never, never, never. I thought it was a slightly overweight, cigar-smoking, fast-living, <laughs> right. stay-up-all-night kind of guy gives you a heart attack. But I couldn't have loved that more. Yeah. He said it to me. That's really sweet. Yeah, I love yeah, that. Yeah, that's how he played it for himself. Uh-huh. Um, and, and you made Diane Keaton a playwright. Uh, you know, there's sort of an old maximum don't make your protagonist a writer because it's too internal. But, I, I mean, obviously you don't believe in that. Well, I never heard that. So maybe if someone said that to me, it would have scared me. <laughs> <laughs> but as I said, this uh, this movie was a lot based on some personal things in my life, so I wanted yeah. her to be a writer. Right. That's great. And when you when you wrote this scene, did you have it all sort of choreographed in your head? Did you know who was sitting where? Did you know what the crosstalk was? Did you know what the dining room looked like rather than a kitchen? You know, was it all sort of, uh, was it all sort of there? Um, I think I saw it in a round table. Mm -hmm. I think that was something I was thinking as I was writing and yes, how the conversation went. Yeah. But you know, these are between Francis McDormand and well, all these guys are so good, you know, they take those looks, they catch those moments between the words. And those are the things that, you know, help make scene great. Right. Yeah, you know? which it is. Yeah. Um, but yes, it was, uh, yeah, it didn't, yes, it was, it was, uh, yes, how I sat them, mm -hmm. of course, was I wanted Jack and Diana across from one another. Right. Right. So they're the main, you know, and then, of course, Amanda would be next to her date, and then the sister would be next to the sister. And right. Love it. Um, and it's also just great that there's, um, it's not just one person driving the scene, a little bit like the apartment scene we heard, you know, it keeps shifting, you know, at first Diane Keaton has, is, is, is the hard charging one and then it's Jack Nicholson and then it's Francis McDormand. That's right. Yeah. It's, and then the young one uh -huh. purposely doesn't have enough to say yet. I didn't, you know, I didn't, that was kind of my take. You mm -hmm. know, I was in my fifties when I wrote this and so I didn't think she had enough to say to make her, she was just terribly uncomfortable through the right. whole thing. Right. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, but I like that, what you're talking about. That's what I'm saying about the apartment. You know, I think the shape of the scene yeah. is something that really should be worked on. Right. You know, I don't like scenes that are just one thing. Right. <laughs> but I noticed that uh, there was no score. Do you remember if you were listening to music when you wrote it or why you chose 
not to have any score? There's too much dialogue in that scene for score. You know, and it's musical in its own way. Yeah, it is. But I don't remember that, but that's always fun when you watch your movie with a composer and you do decide which moments need music and which don't. Right. And, um, and they're great at that. You know, Hans would be great at, because I remember times where I'd say, in the holiday or, or it's complicated or something, I think I need a little, and he'd say, you don't. <laughs> really don't. Just let this play. This is great. Or, you right. know, sometimes music's there just to, to help move things along. Sure. You know, for different reasons. It's not always emotional stuff. Right. Well, going back to to your process that you were talking about earlier, um, when you sit down to write, would you ever stop mid-scene? I mean, it sounds like you really feel like, you know, scenes are the the building blocks, the elements. um, Mm -hmm. And you really care about how a scene begins and ends and and having an arc to it. So... um, you know, do you do you give yourself any sort of like I'm going to write three scenes today, as opposed to I'm going to write ten pages? No, I don't look at it that way. I start every day by rewriting what I did yesterday. That takes me up to the meal. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, depending how early I get there, you know, so uh-huh. if I start, you know, by so by, yeah, so I spend the first like I'd say three hours looking at what I did yesterday. I I I I work super hard. I, I try to make it as good as I can, and it never fails to amaze me that I come in the next day and can spend another three hours on it. Right. Because I don't, you, just, yeah. you just need to get away from it for a minute to come back. Right. You don't need that line or, oh, no, 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 no. Right. If that were here, then that'll make that funnier. You know, all that stuff you see later. Right. I don't do that just because I, I worry about getting too depressed that I'll see yesterday's work was awful. So I just try well, to write I don't want to get show. depressed by seeing 120 pages of that at the end. Fair point. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> okay. I think you're doing it wrong. Help <laughs> okay. yourself as you go. <laughs> and then after lunch, you'll start. Um, then I start the new stuff, which is always like super exciting for me. Like I sometimes like bop up and down in my chair. You know? Oh, that's I get, awesome. Like, very excited. I love that. And, and I feel like I don't, it's like when I, it's like when I get the newspaper, you know, I I won't let myself go to arts and leisure. (laughs) That's the dessert. I I can't look at Teen Magazine as badly as I want to. I have to read the front page of that section. And then I feel I've done my homework. Now I can have fun. I'm the same way. Totally. Really? Yeah, no, always. Because if I if I start with arts and leisure, then um, I'll never. I probably will read the the front page half as well as I would have otherwise. Oh, so yeah, you got to save the dessert for dessert. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. I bet a lot of so writers it's like, like that. that. Discipline. It's like I, I gotta do, I gotta do that work, and yeah. then I can reward myself with going on to something new. And by the way, it, it, it makes it better. Right. And just starting with that in the morning, because now you're just in the groove. Interesting. Yeah, I, I can see that. And who was it? Was it Hemingway who said he always ended his day, um, you know, halfway through a sentence so that he could pick it up the next morning, so it wouldn't just be a blank page. He would have somewhere to begin. Half a sentence. Wow. Yeah, which makes sense. You know, you want yeah. to give yourself a way to to get going in the next morning. So what's next? I'm doing podcasts. You're doing your first ever podcast. Hopefully will lead to many. <laughs> you just spoke at the WGA. You're speaking at the Tribeca Film Festival. Um, you yeah, had I don't a... know what's going on. No. Suddenly... It went on sale today, by the way. Single tickets. Oh, really? Uh-huh. I really am just on a hiatus right now. Okay, great. I really am just trying to um, not work. That's great. There's no new idea that's burning a hole in your pocket. No. Great. No, there isn't. And um, I know that sounds uh, worrisome to somebody. <laughs> not to <laughs> me. living at doing this, but uh-huh. I'm not a person. You know, do you ever see that Woody Allen 
doc where he opens up the drawer at yes. his desk in his bedroom and there's a thousand pieces of paper with yes. ideas on it. I love that. that was the most intimidating thing I've ever seen. <laughs> but I but don't have any ideas. He started reading some of them and it's not like they were all gold. They were just ideas that he's come up with, you know. Over it's years. incredible. They were a sentence. Each one was a sentence. Right. But he would, I'm sure, somehow, um, you know, really work them into movies. But I am not a person that has that drawer with anything in it. So they come to me when they come to me. And so all my life I've just sort of waited. Right. And there was periods where it would come like clockwork. A movie ends, I take a little break. Oh, there's the idea. Right. But um, I don't know. I'm quite content right now. Yeah. No, I, I you know, why go straight? Although I don't really want to be on the lecture circuit. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, somehow you are. It's just by accident. <laughs> yeah, I don't look for it. Yeah. Yeah. Can you just write to me out of the blue? <laughs> I did, but what about Tribeca? Um, out of the blue. And WGA, so funny. Well, this has been so incredibly nice to talk to you, Nancy. Thank you for doing this. You are so delightful, and you're, you're just great <laughs> yeah. to talk to. I feel like that we've had a great uh, lunch without the meal. Totally. Um, it's been fun. Um, all right. Well, I will. Uh, hopefully, I'll see you in New York when you're here for okay, Tribeca. Okay, that would be great. And um, talk to you very soon. Okay. Thank okay. you so Thanks, much. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much to our producer here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please subscribe. You can hit me with questions or comments on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.